It's my very great pleasure and privilege to introduce our first keynote speaker, Professor Kassian Tejapira. Some of you may remember the last time that I introduced a keynote speaker at Euroseas. That was in Vienna two years ago on the 11th of August in the even more spectacular room than this room, the setting of the Austrian Academy of Sciences, where we were privileged to have Professor Benedict Anderson speak to us and the room was patched to the rafters. We had to turn people away. There was an overspill room where you could watch him on video and we had to turn people away from that room as well. Little did we know on that occasion that Professor Anderson would sadly pass away in December of that year and that was one of his last major public speeches. But in that context, it's rather appropriate that today we welcome one of Ben Anderson's most distinguished Cornell students to address us. And it's rather useful also for my purposes, uh, when you're looking around for things to say in introducing people, that Ben happened to have written this article that perhaps not as many people as should have done paid attention to in New Left Review in 1993, which discussed Gassian's uh, writings as part of an essay on the intellectual journeys of former leftists in both Indonesia and Thailand. And of Gassian and his colleagues, Anderson wrote, I'm going to read this to you at least twice because you might not take it all in the first time. In different ways, they write and write and write, by no means entirely for their fellow countrymen, to retrieve treasurable parts of the debris at the angels' retreating feet. They write and write and write, by no means entirely for their, own, for their fellow countrymen, to retrieve treasurable parts of the debris at the angels' retreating feet. Well, what this very Andersonian sentence captures is the lyrical quality of Ajangasian's writings as a teacher, an academic, an author, a newspaper columnist, and latterly as a, a doyen of social media. He has a peerless command of the Thai language and a seemingly effortless ability to coin unfamiliar words and breathe new meanings into old ones. He brings to his academic work as a professor of political science at Tamasite University not only a deep scholarly immersion in a wealth of different literatures, but also a strong sense of his own personal journey as Luke Jean, a Thai of Chinese descent, and his remarkable experiences as a student activist who joined the radical movement in the 1970s and spent time in the jungle. Both of these topics have featured prominently in his work and have brought him recognition as a leading academic specialist of the politics of Thailand. Anderson quotes a short opening passage by Gassian about the collapse of communism in Thailand in that article. He says, so why bother to read, let alone write, such a lengthy and tedious obituary for this political corpse? My answer is that though dead, the spectre of communism is still haunting us that having had such a long and stormy engagement with the living, the dead did not depart without leaving deep imprints on the cultural soul of its intimate interlocutors. And that, as such, only through the writing, reading, and understanding of a communist ghost story can the living become fully aware of their own subconscious cultural selves. Well, Cassian may not be a novelist, for that you must wait until tomorrow's keynote, but he is a poet. And as you may gather from that brief extract, his style of writing is certainly not that of a conventional political scientist. It's by turns personal, philosophical, reflective, analytical, and emotional. 
and it's his amazing facility with language and his almost playful mastery of complex ideas that's made him one of Thailand's leading public intellectuals and a major intellectual voice in the region. Tonight, Ajangasian returns to one of his great themes, the highly ambiguous social and political psychology of the Thai Chinese with a new twist. Why are so many elements of the Sino-Thai community turning right, as he puts it, toward China? How is the emergence of the highly polarized domestic political sphere in Thailand mapped onto the changing geopolitics of the region? These are questions of great salience and importance, not just for Thailand, but for the whole of Southeast Asia. Yours, friends and colleagues, I give you Professor Gassian Tejapira, whom I'm sure will retrieve some treasurable debris for us from the feet of Oxford's retreating angels this evening. Good evening, dear friends and colleagues. Firstly, I would like to thank the university's president, Professor McArthur, for the generous introduction and kind invitation extended to me to speak on this important occasion. The local time now is near 6 p.m. In Bangkok time, it's around midnight, past my bedtime already. <laughs> So during my speech, if I happen to yawn, God forbid, if I happen to yawn or show signs of confusion, please bear with me. Scholars and researchers of Southeast Asia are familiar with the historical figures of the Chinese immigrants. They function as agents or intermediaries of capitalist modernity, who were imported into the colonies by Western colonial master or by local elite in the case of Siam. Over time, they turn into essential outsiders, essential to the normal functioning and prosperity of the economy, but still an outsider nonetheless to the local society culturally and politically. They became economically privileged, but politically important, so to speak. But what, but what if they managed to cross over into the polity and became part and parcel of the insider elite while the world at large is, undergo, is undergoing a dramatic shift from the US-led globalization to the China-led one? What will become of them? of the local power structure and of the regional political and economic developments. My attempt here tonight is to find a way to probe this issue from the case of the Sinotans in Siam. As the title of my talk indicates, I am talking about a rather new salient political tendency in the Chinese community in Thailand both domestically and in relation to China. I'm arguing that a significant portion of the phenotypes among the elite and the middle class, especially in Bangkok and other urban centers, have turned to the right, it a turned conservative or even reactionary and towards China in recent years. One way to make sense of it 
is to compare it with recent developments elsewhere in the world. I think we can compare the Sinotai's right turn towards China with the result of the Brexit referendum here in the UK and the election of Donald Trump as US president last year. They more or less represent a right-wing nationalist reaction against the adverse impact of economic, political, and human rights globalization that has been advocated, promoted, and led by the West in general and the U.S. in particular during the past three decades or so. And of course, in the slide, you have two representatives of this trend, President Donald Trump and Nigel Farage. The other three pictures are protests by members of the middle class in Bangkok in front of the U.S. embassy. And this thing happened during the past two or three years. At this point, I would like to be particularly careful about what I'm adding. I am not agreeing that because of their ascribed ethnicity or culture, all Sinotais among the Thai elite and established urban middle class have turned against liberal democracy and human rights and opt instead for military dictatorship and authoritarian Thais. That is not the case. Nor am I saying that because of their ascribed ethnicity and culture, all of them have chosen to ally themselves with China and turn their back on the U.S. and the West. That is not the case either. What I'm arguing is that in the past two decades after the Cold War, there has emerged in Thailand a new political cultural opportunity structure formed by three key political and economic conjunctions that made it possible to ethnicize or frame the ongoing decade-long conflict. I mean, you must be familiar with this new civil report, the so-called red versus yellow color war in Thailand that has been going on for the past 10 years or so. Make it possible to ethnicize or frame the ongoing decade-long conflict in ethnic terms as partly the struggle of conservative, royal nationalist, patriotic, Lukji or patriotic Taiwan Chinese against the anti westernized globalized artists backed by Western powers. And I think this picture can represent the way they view the conflict at this time. You have former Prime Minister Thaksin Shinwat and former Prime Minister Jin Shinwat, his younger sister, meeting with two US presidents in the world. But on the bottom right of the picture, you have two top protest leaders that topple these two countries. Son Thi Lim Thong Kut, you know, the People Alliance for Democracy on the right, and Sun Thi Suban of the PDRC on the left. Why the, the, on the left side of the slide, you have the cover of a news magazine in Bangkok at the time with a Chinese script in front of it. And it read, Thai Yi Ai Thai That is, the Taiwan Chinese love Thailand. That's how the conflict has been portrayed. Whereas I think the real dynamism of the state conflict has a class and political character. Hence, the appeal of China as a close and congenial, powerful and sympathetic regional allies toward which the Sino-Thais 
have been increasingly oriented both politically and economically. The point is Thailand's recent policy tilt towards China away from the West does have a solid social base that may make it more than just an ad hoc, short-term or opportunistic adjustment. General Budget, our current Prime Minister, meeting with President Xi Jinping and Premier Li Keqing. On the left-hand side, there is a big exhibition in China, and the title of that exhibition is Two Lands, One Heart. And the Thai script, the Chinese script, the Thai script, Kon Thai Kon Jin, you know the Chinese script, Zhong Thai Yen Ming Zhi Xiong Di, the Thai and Chinese are brothers and sisters. Now, some background information on the stenotype elite and middle class is in order. Due to world historical developments in East Asia and China from the late 18th to early 20th century, millions upon millions of migrants of various dialect groups from China have settled in Siam, which was then undergoing a process of monarchy-led modernization, where they developed a distinct pattern of regional and occupational distribution. For example, the Tajiu, the main dialect group in Siam, concentrates mostly in Bangkok. The Hokkien and the Hailamese move to the south, while the Hakka, to which Thaksin belong, moved to the north. Over time, they came to dominate the modern urban commercial and industrial sector, penetrate and ensconce themselves in higher educational institutions and the higher ranks of civil service and intermarry with native Thai royal and bureaucratic elites. Consequently, though accounting for approximately only 14% of the total population, the Sino-Thais now predominate the country's political and economic elites, as well as constitute the plurality of its established urban middle class. And in order to Talk about my next point. I give you here a table that I put it down, put it together myself. It has a synoptic overview of modern Thai politics that spread three key moments in its history. The three major power shifts. The first one happened in mid 19th century to early 20th century under colonialism. The second one happened during the 1960s to the 1970s the period of the Cold War, and the third one from 1990 up to the present. And during this period, the power shift, state power change hands from one class of social group to another. The pattern followed the same, the same trajectory. First, the country opened itself, opened itself to foreign trade, foreign investment. So you have rapid economic growth. And, during, and because of that rapid economic growth, there follow a big social change. There's the rise of a new social group or class, a rapid expansion in number of those class. Up to a certain point, then that class, that new social group, follow the regime of the day, not accommodating their new interests, not accommodating their new position. 
So at that point, you have political contestation and then a measure of regime change. And this happened three times already in modern Thai politics. The Sino-Thai's rise to power and established bourgeois status coincide with the second power shift in modern Thai history. It's a power shift from absolutist military dictatorship of the military bureaucratic elite to semi-democracy under royal hegemony of the unelected business technocratic bureaucratic elite during the 1970s and the early 1990s, when for the first time in modern Thai history, it became ethno-ideologically all right to openly be both Thai and Chinese at the same time. Prior to that time, they have to choose. They can either be Thai or Chinese. They cannot be both. But with that second power shift, I mean, it becomes okay to be both Thai and Chinese at the same time. That period coincides with the period in which the late King Pumipon came of age and into his own politically. It was during this second power shift that a compromise formula was worked out in which the Western instigated process of modernization and conditions of modernity were edited and conjoined with Thai conservative political culture, resulting in what might be called the Pumipon Consensus, which consists of three major elements. First, an economic regime of state promoted oligopolistic, unequal, and unbalanced capitalist development, but tempered, tempered by the king's philosophy of sufficiency. Secondly, a democratic regime of government with the king as head of the state, according to the official formulation, in which the principle of Thai-style democracy was practiced. Of course, as a Thai-style democracy, it differs somewhat from the original formula. The original formula of democracy is that you should have the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. But for Thai-style democracy, we have government of the king, for the people, by the morally upright, intelligent, and self-selected few. And thirdly, an, ideolo an ideological regime of the ethno-ideology of Thainess under royal hegemony, or simply royal nationalism. It was under the beneficent Pumipon consensus, which ran from the early 1970s to the early 2000s, that the Sino-Thai elite and middle class had grown and built up their wealth, status, and power. However, in the past two decades, there have been three big disruptions that threaten the continuity of these three pro-Sino-Thai regimes, namely, first, the 1997 East Asian economic crisis. Secondly, the rise of Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawat in the name of electoral majoritarian democracy since 2001, which comprised the third and current power shift in modern Thai politics and bringing its way 
elected big business hegemony as against the pre-existing royal hegemony. Neoliberal economic platform as against the prevailing philosophy of economic sufficiency and populist policy for the grassroots as against the hitherto fiscal conservatism of the technocrats. As to the third disruption, there is the unprecedented popularly mobilized campaign to initiate amendments to the last Majestic Law in 2012. It was this series of critical political and economic conjunctures that has cumulatively prompted the Sinotai's current right turn toward China. And it is to this crucial conjuncture that they now turn. First, the 1997 economic crisis in Thailand. It sparked off unprecedented currency freefall, financial collapse, severe economic contraction and recession, widespread bankruptcies and unemployment, rising poverty, five sales of assets to foreign financial investors, regional and global crisis contagion, etc., etc. Thai GDP contracted by a massive 10.8% in 1998. 100 or over a quarter of all firms were delisted from the stock exchange of Thailand, half of which due to bankruptcy or collapse. About a quarter of the top business group in pre-crisis Thailand, that is, seven of the top 30, and over 50 of the top 220, either vanished altogether or drastically changed. Nearly two-thirds of big Sino-Thai capitalists went bankrupt. Thousands of companies folded, and two-thirds of the pre-crisis private commercial banks went under and changed hands. One million Thai workers lost their jobs and three million more fell below the poverty line. So it's really a kind of economic calamity. And who did they blame? The Sinotype blamed it on the US-led IMF imposed loan conditionality. The US-led IMF imposed loan conditionality of further liberalization and privatization, contractionary fiscal and monetary policy, that is fiscal austerity and high interest rate led to severe deflation, aggravated economic contraction, and inflict painful adjustment and creative destruction on many Sino-Thai business, be it big, medium, or small. Hence, the resulting economic nationalist reaction against Western or American globalization in their rhetoric and posture. And of course, we have here the iconic picture that represents the time. With the then IMF managing director, Michel Kongdesu, washing and towering over President Suharto while he signing a bail package deal in 1998. There is a particular episode, a confrontation and exchange between the top economic manager at the time. Uh, one is the Thai deputy prime minister for economic affairs, Dr. Virapong Ramanku, and the other is the IMF first deputy managing director, Stanley Fisher. According to Virapong, sometime in late 1997, Fisher invited him and the then Bank of Thailand governor to a working breakfast at Oriental Hotel in downtown Bangkok. 
Whereupon suggested that he and Fisher together reveal the deal being worked out by the Thai government and IMF teams when it's done. In the same manner that professor review a student dissertation. <laughs> Fisher brushed aside the, suge the suggestion on the ground that he had no time, since he had to look after many countries around the world. Whereupon should trust Hubert Nees, the then IMF director for Asia and Pacific. Whereupon should to trust Hubert Nees' economic policy prescription, Sydney's had deal with various countries. Whereupon argued that, but look, each country had its own peculiar economic structure and culture. How could a single formula be universally applied? Fisher simply replied, don't worry, the single formula can be applied all over, leaving Whereupon saddened and dismayed. And of course, China came to the rescue. Meanwhile, China came to Thailand's aid by magnanimously contributing a billion US dollars to the IMF rescue plan and promising not to lower its yuan exchange rate to take advantage of Thailand's difficulties in terms of trade competitiveness. Therefore, even though Thailand made a full economic recovery from the crisis and paid off the IMF loan in 2003, the experience left a bitter taste in many Sino-Thai's mouths. On the other hand, China won from Thailand its gratitude and the endearing image of a sympathetic friend in need, in contrast with the haughty and avaricious US and the clever young but pushed aside and thwart Japan. In Japan has another idea at the time to set up an Asian monetary fund, but the US wouldn't have it. Now we come to the second disruption, the rise of taxing, and he had to contend with the old backlash, the so-called red versus yellow color war. With the seemingly unstoppable rise of taxing, Shinawat and his party, in the name of electoral majoritarian, if authoritarian democracy, since 2001. One can view the past decade of political crisis in Thailand as a series of desperate and costly attempts by the old unelected elites to push for a transition to a stable non-democracy. They want a transition to a stable non-democracy, or you can call it a process of de-democratization, so to speak. And what is it? It's a kind of political regime with elections but under the dominance of non-majoritarian institutions. For example, the bureaucracy, the military, the judiciary, the private council, the independent constitutional bodies. In accordance with the principle of Thai-style democracy, that is, government of the king, for the people, but by the morally upright and intelligent self-selected view. Through extending how they would like to achieve that, through extending mob portrayals and occupation, administrative ungovernability, political anarchy, virtual state failure, judicial goals, military goals, and constitutional engineering. And it was in this context that Sonti Lim Tong Kum, the guy in the right of the slide, 
alias Lin Mingda, a multi-millionaire media tycoon who was bankrupt in the 1997 financial meltdown. A one-time Thaksin ally turned his bitterest opponent. He then spearheaded and led the anti-Thaksin movement People Aligned for Democracy since 2006. And it was Sun Ti who blatantly, aggressively, and successfully invoked and politicized the Sino-Thai identity as he called upon fellow patriotic Lukjin or patriotic Thai-born Chinese, especially those from the Chinatown in Bangkok area, to come to his aid in occupying the government house and toppling the taxi regime with the slogan Thai Bo Yi Ai Thai Bo, Thai-born Chinese left Thailand in 2001. The same ethnicizing mantra was invoked to great effects again in the later PDRC movement to topple the Jing Lakshinawat government under the leadership of Suthep Thirsuban, a veteran former leader of the Opposition Democrat Party in 2014. Non-intervening China. And in both the 2006 group by the CDR, the Council, the so-called Council for Democratic Reform, that toppled the taxing government. And the 2014 group by the NCPO, so-called National Council for Peace and Order, that toppled the Jingla government. Whereas the West in general, and the US in particular, denounced the coups and suspended military aid and economic cooperation, China consistently took the opposite position that the goals were Thailand's internal affairs, in which China wouldn't intervene. This was then followed by various gestures of warm relationship on the part of China, with the new military governments, for example, an offer of military aid, a continuation and strengthening of economic cooperation. These are, uh, when, when they launch a group, they need to appear on TV, and they have to sit in a room. And the guy in the middle is the head of the group. That one happened in 2006, this one happened in 2014. And both guys have good relationship with the top Chinese leader. Now we came to the third disruption. The attempt to amend the last majesty law. But to understand it, we need to step back and look first and a peculiar relationship between the Chinese in Thailand and the monarchy. Traditionally, venerated as lord of life and the land, who is accessible to his subject regardless of their ethnicity, the Thai monarch has played a crucial role in palliating the Sino-Thai's lingering Thai-ness deficiency syndrome. Thai-made deficiencies in you. They never feel Thai enough. Somehow, they would love to be Thai, but they never feel Thai enough. And they try very hard. They learn the Thai language. They change their name from Chinese into Thai. But they never be Thai enough. And the king helped. Under the ideology of Thai-made regimes, Thus, the king conferring a proper royal nationalist Thai identity 
on this affluent unpaid subject and incorporating them into his burgeoning monarchical network since the 1960s. And I think these three pictures have captured the spirit of what happened. The person who appeared in all three pictures is Tanin Jerawanov, the former CEO of Jerawanov, the city group, the multinational corporation that invests heavily in China. So on your left, you have him holding hands with Tanzanian. On your right, he is donating an undisclosed sum of money to His Majesty the King of Nepal to use for public goods at His Majesty the King's own discretion. And also on the bottom right, he is doing the same, donating a sum and undisclosed sum of money to other time, the Crown Prince, to be used for public goods at His Royal Highness, the Crown Prince's own discretion. Yeah. How they came together and connected. And of course, I mean, the Chinese community, the Yawara area in downtown Bangkok, joined force and put up a, a celebration for the Queen's birthday every year. Besides that, at critical moments in modern Thai history, when Thai capitalism faced life and death threats, such as when P.D. Phnom Yong, a leader of the 1932 revolution, proposed a socialist economic plan that would heavily contract the private sector and the market. Or when in 1976, there was the rise of the urban radical student movement the monarchy always acts as the ultimate bulwark against left-wing extremism around which the Sinotai elite and middle class devoutly rally. Um, this is a pretty curious picture I put up there. On your left is a caricature map of Thailand, symbolizing communist threat to the country from the neighbors. Um, <laughs> which appears as communist guerrilla. On your right, the top right, is the cover of King Rama VII wholesale point-by-point point critique of Brady's socialist economic plan. And the bottom right is two photographs showing King Bumipon and Crown Prince Vajiranagor granting audience to village scouts in the aftermath of the 1936 massacre. Therefore, when over a hundred liberal academics and intellectuals proposed amendment to the draconian last majesty law, the so-called, actually it's a criminal penal court section 112, which read as follows, whoever defames, insults, or threatens the king, the queen, the high apparent, or the regent shall be punished with imprisonment of three to fifteen years.
And up to that time, it has been abused very much by right-wing elements and the old elite to prosecute and intimidate political dissidents, especially among the pro-taxing merchants. That's the reason why this group of liberal economies and intellectuals can come together and propose an amendment to that law to prevent this kind of thing happening. Various conservative groups and the elite establishment came out in force to oppose the proposal in defense of the monarchy. Even though the proposed amendment were rejected by the House of Representatives on legal technical grounds, the controversy still lingers on. With the US, the EU, and UN Human Rights Agency time and again, time and again, deploring the laws in liberal nature and heavy punishment and calling for its amendments. Meanwhile, our good dear friend China expressed no opinion whatsoever on the last majestic law and focused instead on strengthening ties with members of the Thai royal family. The picture on the left is the state visit to China by Queen Seriki. I think it's the last state visit that she did, that she go anywhere. It happened in the year 2000, and she was inspecting the Chinese Guard of Honor, accompanied by President Jing Jing. I mean, the, the, the Chinese did everything to welcome her warmly. On your right, uh, you have the two princes. On the top is Her Royal Highness, Princess Mahajakrisa in Thor. She is known to be very fond of China. She visited the country in dozens of times, I think, and she fell in love with it, this culture, and she practiced calligraphy, kind of her favorite thing. And in return, there was a board held online in China to choose the top 10 international friends of China. The China is very good in this country. <laughs> and Princess Sui is one among the top 10 friends of China. And on the bottom right is another princess, Princess Chulaporn Mehidon. Princess Chulaporn uh, became fascinated with Gu Zhen, the kind of Chinese theater. And what she learned to play, and she gave concert of Gu Chen several times in Thailand and China too. So interesting. <laughs> One of the many highly publicized business seminars and conferences, there's a picture from that kind of seminar. Organized and sponsored various five-star hotels in Bangkok and major provinces in recent years. They are done by the big Sinotai banks and agribusiness, telecom, industrial and media corporation to promote commercial, financial and manufacturing joint ventures with prospective Chinese counterparts. These events are usually officiated and attended by Thai economic cabinet minister, the Chinese ambassador to Thailand, as well as Thai and Chinese business, big wigs and scholar. This one is called One Bell, One Road, Thai Chinese Opportunities. Let's get this together, so to speak. Now we reach the final section. 
In the final section of my address, I would like to give you a select series of comments made by some of Thailand's well-known pro-junta public intellectuals, policy makers and political leaders as illustration of how the Thai government's right turn toward China has been made sense of and advocated to the public. First here you have Professor Dr. Anik Lautamatat, a well-known academic turned politician. And he said this, orientalization Asia is the future. China's one belt one road strategy and the US pivoting to Asia policy together have provided a great opportunity for Thailand with its key geopolitical location to play the role of a mediating, profiting, logistical frontline state among China, the US, India, and ASEAN along the historic trajectory of the current rise of Asia. In this endeavor, Thailand needs to maintain a good balance in its relationship with China and the US. This one is rather more controversial. Professor C. Sakpali Podom, actually he's a famed archaeologist and anthropologist, but he has transformed himself also into a conservative royal nationalist communicator. And his idea, his idea is that Siam today has become a joint protectorate of the US and China. And the picture on your right symbolizes it. You have four statues, two of them obviously Chinese. The other two with the hats on holding a US national flag. With this small boy wearing a tie kneeling down before this four statue. Historically, Siam has slavishly fallen prey to intellectual westernization and political and economic Americanization, particularly predatory capitalism and anti-monarchist democracy that have ravaged our natural resources, community culture, and local autonomy. To balance the power of the US, the UN, and the West in general, the Thai military government has veered toward China and its ally in the East, thus making Siam willy-nilly a joint protectorate of the US and China. However, China, though not particularly choosy when it comes to the political regime of Thailand, is in fact no better than the US in its economic rapaciousness and immigrant infiltration and racial occupation. The military government needs to become fully and unabashedly dictatorial in dealing with its westernized opponents. The word westernized opponents mean the Thai who sell themselves to the West. Shut the country off from the outside world for five years or more and practice the philosophy of sufficiency. Next, you have Professor Dr. Kien with Veteran Doyen of Chinese Study in Thailand, well-known academy. And he asks, is an outsider PM a Thai or not? Thai academics, journalists, political activists, and politicians should not fall into the democracy trap of Western dogmatism. Given the unscrupulous Thai voting behavior, and resulting electoral frauds, democracy has led to the government of the corrupted British, like Taksin, which violated the rule of law 
and the constitution for the interests of himself and his cronies. Besides, the aggressive and warlike action of the self-proclaimed champion of democracy, like the U.S., should remind us of the danger of vulgar and fake democracy. So instead of pinning false hope on fake democracy and, and underachieving elected PM or insider PM like Thaksin and Yingluck, one should offer an overachieving unelected PM or outsider PM like General Brantin Sulanun, Anand Panyarashun, and General Prayut Janusha instead. After all, he is a patriotic soldier and a tyrant. Isn't he? Here's a little on me, self-confession of a kind kilogram. The same is tick model. Tick is a kind of parasitic insect. You will find it uh, on your pets, dogs and cats, and it sucks blood from your pets, so to speak. And Dr. Sunchai Sajapong came up with the idea of the Siamese tick model. The Ministry of Finance has been thinking of introducing the Siamese tick model <laughs> to drive our international economic relations forward by stressing the building of trade and investment alliances with various countries, especially those with continuing growth potential, so as to jointly energize the economic expansion of both Thailand and her allies, for example, China, India, and African and Asian countries. This is because an emphasis on competition with other countries won't do any good to Thailand's overall economy in the context of global economic slowdown. The Siamese tick model will help us grow along with those expanding economies. We need not go alone, since we can depend on our allies. For example, if China grows, we will also become fattened. <laughs> we can suck China's blood. So, may as well call them the Chinese sucker. If China grows, we will also become. This is awkward. Fattened. But if China stops growing, we can leave it for India or South Africa instead. No loyalty here. No loyalty here. This is our growth strategy. That is, whoever grows, we will simply get a ride with it. And last but not least, our Prime Minister and Head of the City of Gunda, General Pajun, who recommend as to read Xi Jinping books. At the government house, Mrs. Gop Gan Watanawarangun, Minister of Tourism and Sport, has stated that during the cabinet meeting, Prime Minister and Head of the NCPO, General Pujutjanosha, recommended that the cabinet member should read The Governance of China, a book written by the Chinese leader, whose approach was relevant to Thailand, since both countries were in a similar period of reform. In conclusion, after three years of Sinophile military dictatorship, what happened? Well, things don't really go as they planned. First, let the dismount underperformance of the economy 
relative to regional neighbors and in comparison with the economic conditions under the previous elected governments. Secondly, there's growing discontent with policy by us in favor of big business while, while neglecting agriculture and so-called SME, small and medium-sized enterprises. The third factor, of course, we have the accession to the throne of the new monarch, who has yet to win the deep-rooted popularity and enduring hegemony of his late predecessor. And last but not least, disadvantages and cost ineffectiveness of the many big-ticket arms procurement and joint infrastructure construction deals the Purdue government has made with China. It has now become a point of criticism and contention. So likely, that xenotized sentiments will shift and a policy adjustment of sort is possible, especially in the aftermath of the scheduled general elections in 2018. If it will help. Thank you very much.